So two elders tonight or today have told me that this is a difficult passage. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, they, they didn't say that until today. So I guess, they, I guess they figured it's too late to back out now. But nobody said that leading up to it. And I've known about this for weeks, so it's pretty funny. And then one of our other elders, Matt McBroom, I joked with him because his name was in the bulletin. And I said, hey, man, I can't, can't wait to hear your sermon tonight. It's going to be great, right? And he's like, hey, I'm doing e-kids. You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about. So um, I think tonight's going to be good. I think God's word will caution us. I think it will warn us against deceit. It will remind us that Christ will be victorious over sin and death. It gives us hope that our faith will be rewarded. Uh, it's funny how God works. The, the song, uh, the last song we sung that Andrew chose, um, Christ our solid rock, just mirrors this passage a lot. I actually referenced it in, in when I was writing the sermon. Um, and then I'm listening to Josh this morning, and he's saying things that are, that are applicable. And I was teaching Sunday school this morning, and uh, things kept coming up that made me think of this passage. So I think tonight's text will remind us that God is in control, that he has a plan for this world. He cares about his creation. He's coming back for his bride, which is the church. And even when things seem like they're as bad as they can be, he is still sovereign and in control. The passage is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we've been doing a series on the mysteries, and, and this is the mystery of lawlessness, is what this one is. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know it is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so, until he is out of the way. And when and then the lawlessness, sorry, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may, be, may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for this passage tonight. Although it is difficult, Lord, it can teach us many things. Lord, clear up the things that are difficult. Shine light on the things that you wish us to see. Lord, soften up our hearts so that we can receive these hard truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last time I did this, I brought up one of those plastic water bottles, and it crunched, and the mic picked it up, and it sounded terrible when I went back and read it, so I did what Josh did and brought a cup. Uh, there's three things I want us to see from this passage, or three points, if you want to call them that. The first one is that there are parts of this that we just cannot know for sure. Um, they're, they're a little vague. I wouldn't call them confusing. It's just there's only so much information there, and we probably shouldn't go past what the Bible is giving us. So the first thing is things that we cannot know for certain based on what's there. We don't have access to. Josh Green said this morning, uh, and Josh Womble just mentioned it, we don't know for sure what happened to Demas. We just get that he did abandon Paul, at least for a time, and we don't know for sure if he ended up being a believer or fell from the faith. Um, and it's just simply that we don't know. We only have so much information, and that's what we can go off of. So there will be some of that in tonight's passage. The second idea, so the first one is things we're not sure of. The second idea is things that we can know for sure. So there's some very clear truths in this passage, and, I, and that's kind of what I want to focus on tonight. Um, instead of focusing on what we can't know, let's focus on what we can know for certain. And there's much in the text that is clear and straightforward, and it's also encouraging and helpful to us. And the last part will be, what can we do with those truths from the passage, the things that we can know, what can we do with them? So first off, let's look at what we don't know for sure. Some things that are vague or some unknown areas. Uh, I was in Sunday school class with Josh Womble. It's been a few months ago, I think, maybe years, kind of blends together. And we were sitting in Revelation, and when he was teaching, he, he was teaching the four different primary views or interpretations of Revelation, and, and he was pretty clever to never really tell us which one of the four he agreed with. So it was, it was, you were always trying to figure out which one he was, and I think in the end he said he like wasn't any of them or something. And so based on your interpretation of Revelation, that will impact how you read this passage. It's about end times, uh, the coming of a man of lawlessness. And so depending on where you're at with your end times views, it will change the way you read this passage. And our pastors do a good job of reminding us that Things like end times are, are really a lower level. They call them, I think, tier three doctrines. And it's okay to disagree on them. So if we all sit here in the same church and we have a bunch of different views on exactly what it looks like when Jesus comes back, that's okay. We don't need to go make a new church down the road because this side of the room believes that there's a pre-tribulation rapture and this side believes it's a post-tribulation rapture. There are things that are worth discussing in Sunday school classes, but they're not big enough for us to cause divisions over. So what we don't know, or at least what is maybe not clear, I listened to two 
uh, really po uh, popular preachers, John MacArthur and John Piper, on this passage. And because they have different end times views, they, they separated um, on where, on the details of the passage, on exactly what the interpretations were going to look like. Uh, but they didn't disagree on the main thrust. And the main thrust was that um, whoever this man of lawlessness is, he's been given his power by God. And so he, it's a part of God's plan. He's not acting on his own accord. And whatever this person or thing restraining the man of lawlessness is, that is also God's work. So we can argue over maybe what the details of those things are, um, but behind both of them is, is God's hand at work. Uh, we can know for sure that when Jesus comes back, he'll destroy lawlessness and the man of lawlessness completely, and truth and justice will reign and, and have their day. So this brings us to the man of lawlessness. Who is he? Is he one man? Has he come yet? When will he come? Where will he come from? What will he do? It's called a mystery for a reason. We don't have all the details. It's like looking at something through a veil or a foggy glass. We see the picture, but it's not clear. Uh, I, thought it was, I looked up a lot of commentaries on this, and the funniest one I found, St. Augustine, who studied the Bible a long time ago, just said, frankly, on this, I don't know what he's talking about. So I said, okay, if he doesn't know for sure, it's okay that I don't know for sure. And I think that's what Josh and Josh meant when they said it's a difficult passage. So the Christians awaiting Jesus' Jesus's return in the first century A.D. believed he was coming soon in their lifetime. In fact, there were some who thought he had already came, and, he's, and they missed it. So they thought Jesus came back, and they missed it. So verses 2 and 3 uh, tell us that. It says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So what Paul's addressing here, and again, this is a letter to a church, and he's saying... It, it's interesting because he's alluding to maybe there were people using either a spoken word or possibly even a forged letter because he mentions a letter seeming to be from us. So there's people that speculate maybe there were people passing around letters with Paul's signature on them. We don't know that for sure, but it does kind of seem like that's what he's saying. He says, look, even if you got a letter that looked like it was from me and it said the day of the Lord has come, don't let it deceive you because the day of the Lord can't come unless all of these things happen first. So he, Paul refers back to something he had already taught them. And this is a little bit where, like earlier with Demas, we just don't know because he says, do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Well, we weren't there. So apparently they remembered or should have remembered. Paul's talking to them as if they should have remembered these things that he taught them in person. Because we weren't there, we just simply don't know what it was he taught them when he was with them. So no amount of you know, looking into it or, or speculating will let us know. That's just simply all the information that we have 
and that's all the information that we will have. We're not awaiting more pieces of this letter. We have it intact. Uh, the word of God is sufficient and without error. And so this is enough information for us to have on this topic. So we're left to ponder this a bit because he, he says as to what they should know. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Okay, so there's something or someone restraining this man of lawlessness. Uh, there's three primary beliefs on what this might be. I don't want to make this the, the point, but I'll just go through them. Just for your information, these are what the three most prominent views are on who the restrainer of the man of lawlessness is. One belief is it could be the Holy Spirit and the church. This seems to be the most common, inter common sense interpretation because if we think about it, we can, we can think in a sense of the Holy Spirit working through us, the church, holding back. Um, lawlessness, and we can think of lawlessness as evil, anti-God, anti-law. So around the world where there's a church and there's God's Holy Spirit working, we would think that those places are not fully taken over by evil as much as they would be if there is no presence of the church and no presence of God's Spirit there. So the Holy Spirit working through the lives of his people, the church, uh, the bride of Christ is representing the good in the world and that the good is actively holding back the power of sin and death, restraining them from reaching their full potential. So things aren't as bad as they could be. And I know we, we watch the news and it, sometimes it seems like things are just as bad as they possibly could be. But I think most of us would agree that things could be worse and there does seem to be a sense of God keeping things being from as bad as they could be. Uh, another possibility for the restrainer of the man of lawlessness is there's some who would say that Paul purposely leaves out who it is and just alludes to it by reminding them, hey, remember I told you, kind of like a wink, wink, uh, because he, there are some people who think that uh, at this time the Roman government could have been the, the thing restraining the man of lawlessness, and Paul didn't want to draw attention to that, kind of like we avoid political discussions sometimes. Paul didn't want to face any backlash from the Romans by calling them out in this letter. Um, this would have been the idea that God using a human institution like government was holding back lawlessness and keeping some order of society um, so that complete chaos and lawlessness was not taking over. And we see that around us. I mean, if you think about it, you're driving down the road, you see the speed limit sign, and the, that law, that sense of order, keeps you from driving as fast as maybe you would drive otherwise. The third possibility um, is similar to the first, and it's that the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles which Paul started, is restraining lawlessness and that lawlessness will not completely take over or break out until um, all the world is evangelized. And there's a, there's a verse that kind of backs this one up. It's, it's Matthew 24, 10 through 14. I'll read it to you. 
Jesus says, then many will take offense, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there are some people that would say that verse kind of clearly spells out that God is waiting for this man of lawlessness to come and his overall plan uh, until the whole world has a chance to hear the gospel. It could be a combination of those three. It could be one of them. I don't think we're supposed to know, but there, it, the idea is that God is actively restraining evil so that our world is not as bad as it could be. I thought about going into who is this man of lawlessness, but it seems like a rabbit trail. Um, if you, You've heard plenty of times before uh, things about the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. Um, it's brought up in Daniel. It's brought up in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark specifically. Um, when Josh preached through the minor prophets, Zechariah mentioned uh, the bad shepherd that was to come. And all throughout history, people have said, that guy is the Antichrist, right? We've, you know, if we've been alive long enough, we've heard people say that. People definitely were saying it about Hitler. Um, back in Paul's time, people were saying it about certain Roman emperors. That this must be the Antichrist. This person is just anti-God and anti-law. And so they must be um, this man of lawlessness. It's, it's definitely possible that those were types of the man of lawlessness or the abomination of desolation or the Antichrist, but because Jesus hasn't come back yet, we do know it's not the man of lawlessness uh, that the passage is referring to. Those are, that's what we don't know, and, and you know we can speculate and we can, we can come up with some opinions and theories, but I want to get to what we can know. 1 John 7 says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So just as in the days of the apostle John, so now today, there are those who preach lies. And we hear them on the news, we hear them all around, contrary to what we're teaching here in the church, the gospel. Think about it. We hear things from there is no God. Um, God is kind of like whoever you want it to be, like your own personal God. Um, we are our own gods. We make up what is true and what's not. Or sometimes there's just no such thing as sin, so we don't really need a God telling us right from wrong or, or a Savior to save us from sin. But as Christians, we, we have to hold fast to the truth and embrace biblical doctrine to guard ourselves against these lies. Because even though we kind of clearly know those are lies, if we were to get out of the Word and get out of church, eventually one of those things could start making sense to us. I think a good example of people questioning truth is Pilate. Uh, when he had custody of Jesus, he actually asked Jesus, what is truth? And we hear people do this 
in today's world, they, they kind of doubt the existence of truth, like truth is either relative or it's not even real. They think everything is sort of relative to their situation. Uh, but we know Jesus is the truth. So that's kind of the ironic thing about Pilate's question is he was talking to the physical embodiment of truth. The Word of God, the Bible, is truth. This is what we base our beliefs on. And we're not to let the unbelieving world tell us uh, what we should believe. I mean, think about what we used to think of as fundamentally true is now changing. I mean, used, used to a man was a man and a woman was a woman, and there was really no debate about it. But now we're told maybe that's not real. Maybe we just made that up, and maybe, maybe women can be men and men can be women, and there's no difference. So the Thessalonians in this passage were anxious about Christ's return. Uh, verse 4, Paul tells us, uh, one way we'll know of Christ's return. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul is alerting his readers here, the early Christians, about the coming of one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. This is the type of person that we're to be looking for. This must happen before the day of the Lord. Paul is telling the Christians, look, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. So he's preparing them for this time to come so that they're not convinced by his devilish schemes when he does come. The same way today, we're to be on guard against modern philosophies or false religions which are preaching something other than Christ crucified. Another thing we can know for sure from the passage, Jesus is coming a second time to bring judgment. This is where the passage in 2 Thessalonians takes us. As we await our Savior, especially now that it's been 2,000 years since he ascended, we are left asking, what do we do in the meantime? How do we act in the world? And what can we expect to happen to us now that we are God's people? Without getting into any timelines, including the people or places, we can agree that from the letter written by Paul and other end-time writings in the, in the Bible, uh, we know some basic facts about the end times. There will be an antichrist figure that will appear and deceive many people. He'll exalt himself to the point of God, and many will follow him. Jesus will return at some point. We cannot be for sure when he'll come and save his people once and for all by taking them to his kingdom. But we're caught now in the in-between. So Jesus has not come back yet, and we are waiting, much like the Christians here in Thessalonica were waiting. So we read Paul's letter with that in common with our early church brothers and sisters. Separated by thousands of miles and years, we are both waiting on the second coming of Jesus. And just like they could have testified, so can we today, that the world is definitely facing the effects of sin and Satan. We are in a world that as believers, although we are God's children, we are set apart, we're not immune from sin's effects, as we've heard from numerous prayer requests. No doubt one of the most promising and hopeful aspects of Christianity is the end to the effects of sin and death. We know these things will come to an end. We know Jesus' return to earth will finally end Satan's reign and there will be no disease or decay on earth. No more death or sin. The only way we know these things is through his promises, which he has preserved in his word, the Bible. 
So we read and study passages like tonight's in light of the fact that this is the Lord's world and he has a plan for it. He's revealed that plan to us through his word, sometimes very clearly and sometimes vaguely. But we have sufficient knowledge to know that there is a God who loves us and he has a plan for us. We don't always get access to the details. There is some mystery to the scriptures as we have been studying these past few weeks on Sunday night. Not a mystery like in shows or books where we can decode with the right tools, but a mystery in a sense that God's ways are not our ways. And until we are glorified, we simply will not be able to comprehend his ways. Christ's victorious return is something that is not vague or complicated. It's something we can have hope in. There is no debate amongst the believers about whether or not that will happen. This was the promise all the way back in Genesis 3 that Josh Green read at the beginning of the service. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised from the beginning that Satan would be defeated. Jesus will be the one to defeat him once and for all. In second, in, um, sorry, in just before the passage from tonight in Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So his coming is is certain. We can know it for sure. But what about the ones that don't believe, that are given over to lawlessness, who refuse to recognize Christ as Lord and instead embrace sin? Here's what Paul says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all the power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So like the example of Judas from the sermon this morning who embraced sin. He didn't resist sin. And look at what he did. He was one of Jesus' followers and because he didn't resist sin and he embraced it, he was judged wicked. So for our practical application, what can we do with this knowledge? Embrace the truth. Love the truth. Turn away from lies. We can't let lies take root in our heart. The Thessalonians believed a lie that was causing them to be anxious and overly excited about the return of the Lord. That's what lies do. They cause us to worry and doubt and cease to believe what we know is true. It is no mystery that Satan's first trick was to deceive Eve. Eve knew the truth but accepted a lie and then acted on that lie. The lie caused her to doubt what she knew to be true and the consequences, as we can attest to, were very severe. Just a chapter later in Genesis, God is talking to Cain right before he murders his brother. God tells him, if you do well, you will be accepted. 
But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Well, Cain didn't embrace the truth. He didn't listen to God. He didn't love God. He didn't love the truth. And in the very next verse, he murders his brother. He let sin in, and he didn't resist it. But it's easy to be deceived sometimes. Jesus himself said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What is Jesus talking about here? Where is this gate and how do we find it? Well, Jesus is the gate. He told us so himself. He said, I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus sets a stark contrast between entering through him and entering in any other way. There is a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and following him leads to destruction, and there are many who will go this way. So how can we be sure that this doesn't happen to us? We embrace the truth. We love the truth. We pluck out lies that we have been deceived with. We ask God to show us the truth. We ask each other as believers to point out any lies that we may be believing. We must be on guard against lies. We must root our beliefs in truth. Like the song uh, we sang, if our foundation isn't Christ, then it's sinking sand. We can be encouraged by the fact that in the end, the ones that love the truth will be saved. The ones that love lies and love the things that were opposite the truth, those will be judged guilty. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 3, this is the part I was teaching on in Sunday school this morning, the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. We're to hold firm to the foundation of Christ, the solid rock. Paul in chapter 4, 1 Timothy says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Let's not let our consciences be seared. This happens like it did to Judas in the example earlier. It happens to Cain. As Pastor Josh explained this morning, we allow sin in, we don't resist it, and it leads to us falling away. So what can we take away from this? There's evil in the world, but it is contained or restrained by God's power. Jesus will return and destroy and judge those who love wickedness. Then we will reign with Christ in his kingdom. Until then, it is our job to defend our faith against the lies of the devil. We must pluck out the lies and replace them with truth. We cannot allow ourselves or each other, the church, to be deceived. Our patience and endurance will be rewarded in the end. Let's pray. God, thank you for this church. Let it be a pillar and buttress of truth, Lord. Thank you for passages like this, which encourages us to believe in your word and to resist the devil. In Christ's name we pray, amen.